Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcasting app. I know it's somewhat annoying to keep hearing me harp on this, but it's an unfortunate fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting good ratings increases our visibility on the apps, which helps us build an audience, which lets us continue to get the great guests that we have on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And if you feel extra motivated, feel free to write a review. Thanks. Today's guest is Ashley Colby, an instructor at Rhizoma Field School in Colonia, Uruguay. She's an environmental sociologist with a PhD from Washington State University. Previously, she was an itinerant overland international traveler, a Chicago Tribune travel writer, and a long-haul 18-wheel trucker. I love those kind of 1935 literary novelist kinds of bios. They make me think about somebody who's real. Reminds me of myself a little bit when I was young. But now she's focused on fomenting local and decentralized networks of people who can get us to the next iteration of society and do it fast. That's all good stuff. Welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored. Yeah, I love to have people on the show that are thinking about these kinds of things. You know, these are very much in the kind of Game B way of thinking about the world, or at least what we call Game B adjacent. So many of us are sort of generally headed in the same direction. We don't use the same vocabulary necessarily or do the same work, but we're all trying to figure out what comes next when the current social operating system unravels, which we'll talk about like a lot of us believe that it will. Today, we're going to talk basically about two things. One, we're going to start with Ashley's book, Subsistence Agriculture in the U.S., Reconnecting to Work, Nature, and Community. And then we're going to dig a little bit into the actual work and practice that she and her husband and family do at their Rhizoma Field School in Uruguay. And of course, as anyone who listens to the show knows, we might go off here and there too. So we'll go where the conversation leads. So let's start. Let's jump in. Let's get started. As I often do, I'll talk a little bit about the terminology, which will get used later. First, this is, you know, sort of classic sociological jargon, which I remember hearing when I was 19, but couldn't tell you which one was which. Two terms that you use a fair bit are Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, if I said those approximately correctly. So Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. They're terms, you know, that are they're commonly tossed around in, you know, intro sociology classes and people have a hard time keeping them straight. In fact, you know, I should say on the record that much of what's in my current book is is jargon heavy because the gatekeepers were my my dissertation committee who want, who want to see such academic rigor, but um, to me is terms are terms and definitions are only useful when they're useful <laughs> and not when they're not. But um, having said that, I do think that it's important to think about the historical era that we're in. And these terms can help us to understand that. Um, so I have a chart in my book that basically describes the traditional organic era and then the rational inorganic era. And I would say that the rational inorganic era are, is the era we're in now, the industrial era. Um, and the, there's 
qualitative differences between the two. Traditional organic um, has has such characteristics like the organic limitations to production. People had businesses in their home. There was land held in common. Um, oftentimes, nutrients would cycle back into the earth uh, through one means or another. People felt enchanted by nature um, and not feel fully sort of scientific, rational understanding of nature. Um, and this is where Gemeinschaft comes in. It's it's this idea of subjective community ties, these, this sort of uh, connection to one another that this this network that ties us all together and 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 understanding that um, individuals are just part of a social fabric. Uh, whereas the the rational inorganic or or industrial era would include such characteristics like uh, increasingly growing production um, with agricultural chemistry in the ag sector, but also growing production in the industry sector, uh, businesses separate from the home. We have private land, enclosure, linear nutrient cycle, um, meaning, you know, things are pu are pulled from the earth resources and then discarded in some other place from where they were pulled um, disenchantment rationalization um, and then that's where gesellschaft comes in which is the sort of rational ties with with other people the sort of instrumental way of thinking of human relations in in terms of um, rationality and and what one can get from from someone else not very good now I remember, actually, Professor said, think of mine as in my and sell as a, some sleazy salesman, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, good heuristic. Yeah. Yeah, not too bad. And we'll may refer to those as we go. The other little bit of theory that you use a fair amount is dual process theory. I have to say that was a new one on me. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, this is actually a theory by a man named Morris Berman. Really interesting character um, if your readers want to look into him further. But I actually had to fight with my committee to get them to accept my use of his theory. But I thought it had ex extremely good explanatory power for the period of time that we're in. Um, so I decided to use it anyways and pick the fight with them. Um, but dual process theory basically argues that any time any society or civilization fails for any reason, some other society will arise out of the ashes. Um, and so basically, he argues that our modern form of capitalism runs from 1500 to 2100. Uh, we're in that last period where system the system starts to fail in such a way that, um, that people necessarily have to seek out alternatives because their needs are not being met by the system because of its failure. And it is in those those moments of seeking out alternatives that uh, the next system blooms. Um, but the idea being that these people are not explicitly saying, take down the system. They're responding to the system as it's failing. Um, and in coming up with solutions, they are creating alternatives. But it is important to note that that process is not linear, like, you know, one system fails and the next system necessarily is just rising cleanly into the future. It's, it's, a, it's a period of time of what a lot of people on the internet like to call the liminal <laughs> period of time, which I think we're in, uh, which is more or less this, this uh, experimentation. Um, some things succeed, other things fail, some things fail and then succeed again on a different timeline. Um, and it's just a period of time where things are in fits and starts and the next system, the seed of the next system 
um, is being planted. Yeah, that's very much sounds like at least my take on where we're at today. Regular listeners know I'm from the Game B community, one of the co-founders of it, but also associate with a large number of people in what we call the Game B adjacent space, in which there's dozens, hundreds probably, of independent people trying to find their way to the social operating system of the future. But as you point out, not in a, hey, you know, we're Lenin sitting here in St. Petersburg in 1917, and we're going to take the thing down, but rather... You know, we're building little things here and there that may grow. And, you know, you can start with a small seed. And if you grow exponentially for 50 years, you may take over the system just organically. And that's what we call the long road to game B. The other is that our current view of this status of the world and this coming transformation is it might be gradual and relatively peaceful, or it might be caused by a crisis of some sort and be quite dramatic and chaotic. And so the Game B and Game B adjacents, we believe, are very useful to have there as pre-built and pre-tested, give us a few more years, ways of doing human society that we can you know, push forward somewhat prematurely at need should the current Game A world actually break down in a major way. Absolutely. And I would just add to that, um, I think it's actually a distinction worth thinking about is the difference between or how social change happens um, in a lot of our minds is that uh, a lot of people start thinking, let's change the system. And then they like maybe uh, sort of try to go after the, the, pow- the centers of power in the system. And this is a different kind of conception. And, and both of these ways of social change can happen. You can try to fight the system and bring it down. Um, but the, this, the, what I'm describing is um, sort of a bottom-up movement that's unself-conscious, that is itself uh, not thinking, let's take down the system, but instead sort of just arising naturally out of the system's failure. So that's key, I think, in understanding what I argue in the book, because my sense is that a lot of people who are engaged in the game B or game B adjacent world don't know they are. <laughs> and I'm saying they are because I'm a sociologist and I'm I'm trying to assess what's going on. But if I went to them and asked them, like, are you are you um, you know, growing food because you're interested in making the next world order, <laughs> they would laugh at me, you know. So that's that's I think an important distinction um, in trying to think about who gets included in a social movement and, and a future, a co-creation of a future. That's interesting. It caused me to have the thought that there obviously is the third class, which those of us in the Game B or in the other 50 other Game B adjacent movements who do know that we are building the operating system for the future, yet we're doing it in a bottoms up, non-prescriptive empirical experiment and empiricism cycle with theory and reinforce each other. So maybe there's a third class. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine that I would probably be a part of that third class because I'm I'm very self-conscious about all the things that I'm seeing happen and how do I foment them? I'm a social scientist. How do I research them to make sure I'm helping the ones that are doing the best and that kind of thing? Um, but I would caution against too much um, engineering, top-down engineering. We can get into that discussion too, but when people are too self-conscious, there can be some expected homogeneity of thinking of ideology oh you have to be you have to agree x y and z if you're going to be in our vision of the future kind of thing 
Whereas if people are kind of spontaneously coming up with solutions that make sense for them and spontaneously associating with other people who are engaging in similar solutions and have some way to help one another, um, I think it's a lot healthier and more diverse bottom-up way of doing things. So I don't know, we can get back, we can get into that more if you want. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. And I'm with you. Certainly Game B group is very much about pluralism, a big tent, non-ideological and non-utopian, by the way. We don't believe there is some wonderful location that we're all headed to. Rather, our thinking is that if we're smart and work with discernment and build some new institutional structures in place, which are needed, humanity can find its way to a good future. Though exactly what that is, we don't actually know, right? We don't come in with a book that says, here's utopia and here's the road to get there. We've seen that book before. It has not ended well. (laughs) I could not agree more. So actually, get me to the next and hopefully last preliminary, and we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show chat. The book is definitely got a Marxist lens to it, and you know, at least I found it kind of a doctrinaire kind of way, at least superficially. And as we talked about, that was sort of you know writing for the audience you had to write for. But what I noticed, and I have some really cool tools to let me do this, I found that you use the word paradox and paradoxical twenty-eight times, <laughs> <laughs> and mostly in, in fact. I think always, maybe one exception, in the use case of saying, well, here's an example of the research of what I discovered during my field research, but it contradicts theory. It's a paradox, (laughs) which led me to think, well, hmm, I think I would take the further inference that maybe these theories are full of shit. So, okay. Uh, yeah, the, this is really important to me because I, I basically, you know, I wrote the book to get the PhD, but then left academia swiftly, swiftly following the earning the degree. Um, because of this, you know, adherence to not just ideology, but it's a group think thing. It's, you got to get to, you get in the club if you use the right terms and, um, and then you you get allies and we're we're all on the Marx team or whatever and and then um, you know people it, it's it's as a sociologist you know that this kind of thing happens and it opens doors so uh, for me that that caused me to re- reject it um, after after writing the book but yeah I think mainly the paradox comment to me has to do with the fact that a lot of these theories you're right um, want to explain the world in one way. And what I found um, actually talking to people is that it's it's confusing, it's messy. Um, people start self-producing food, which was the, the topic of the book, was talking to people who, who do enough food production that I called them subsistence food producers. Um, in the process of doing it, started with a kind of neoliberal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of my own self and my own family type attitude. And then it it transformed into sort of a communal attitude uh, when they started connecting with other practitioners. And there was really no theory to explain that. (laughs) You know, in sociology, you either want to say, you know, this individualism is horrible and it's destroying our society, or you want to say like everything, this, these people doing solidarity economies, whatever, pick your term, um, are perfect and great. And, and everything's, everything's going to be great if we just let, leave them in charge. Um, and to me, it's really important to understand the messy nature of reality, (laughs) to get outside the linear regression models and understand that, you know, it can be both and, and I think this is really a political point too, because, um, especially in leftist politics, there's this, 
purity politics. You know, everything, the solution has to be perfectly pure to be used um, or to even be discussed as a potential solution. And and I make the, the opposite case that these solutions are necessarily messy. They have to be messy. When we're figuring this stuff out, we're experimenting and we cannot get to the point we want to get to without messy stumbling blocks. Um, and so the paradox is meant to, using that term is meant to illustrate or at least enter into the discussion that it's okay <laughs> if things are a little bit messy, if they're imperfect, if they're not pure, and in fact, they should be. And and anyone who knows the scientific method knows that you must test ideas to find out whether or not they're true. So it's funny that like we've reached an ideological point of of um, you know you can only enter into the debate once you've already figured out the perfect solution, um, <laughs> because that makes no sense uh, at least in terms of how science works and how how human human knowledge works. Yes, and and that's I think part of our world of game B and sense-making, et cetera, is that we reject this new bizarre form of leftism that isn't actually progressive and is actually authoritarian and rigid and non-pluralistic. And we think it's a major error that is going to hold back what comes next from coming if anybody pays attention to it. And as you know, it basically dominates fields like sociology and the humanities and is growing in influence in some of the other academic disciplines. It's getting growing acceptance in the media and some large corporations. But in terms of actual people, most people think it's utter horseshit, right? And so it's going to be a very interesting next few years to see what happens in this kind of elite-driven, doctrinaire, purist, nonsensical, non-scientific thing as it confronts the real world. I have some fears that it actually is going to cause a serious reactionary backlash. That's why I warn my progressives, we have to stick with real progressivism so that wokeism doesn't take over progressivism. Because if it does, it's going to be just like 1968, where when the new left took over the definition of progressivism and ended up with 40 years of conservative politics. Right. Yeah. And I, I would argue, even from a strategic point of view, um, if you want to make a social movement, um, you have to find ways in which we have goals in common, right? And the purity politics is never going to get us there, um, especially when the problem we face is so incredibly complex. There's no way for any person to uh, have completely figured out the solution independently of you. It's the perfectly pure solution. And then we get together. <laughs> it just makes no sense. And that's really the theory of change that underlies, um, I think, that movement is this, you know, we need to make sure we pick the right system and it needs to be perfect before we make any mistakes. And it's pretty foolhardy. And it's it's not it's not going to be very powerful to connect with others in, in solidarity, um, thinking that way. Yeah. Yeah. Let me throw an alternative lens. and I'd love to get your reaction to it. You know, when I think of Marxist style sociology, I think of very heavy lumping, you know, race, class, gender, you know. But in reality, if you back up and look at what is real, those things are sometimes useful statistical correlates, right? But not much more than that. I mean, but if you want to get down to what's really going on, the phrase I like to use is networked social capital. Each individual person has social capital or has access to social capital, basically across those links in which they participate. And every single person has a different loading of network social capital. 
However, the lumpers and the splitters meet at the fact that in certain lumps, you'll find different network topographies being more common than others. But nonetheless, every single individual will be different with respect to their network social capital endowments. And the way we can work, rather than trying to think about these gigantic lumps, is say, how can we improve the network social capital that's available to people? Right. And you can start with one other person, right? Teach one other person how to grow turnips and you've just added to their network social capital. Develop a system for people to spread the knowledge of how to grow turnips in a garden box. And you now have a machine to replicate network social capital, which can produce change. And it may absolutely, as you point out repeatedly, cross these traditional lumpy lines of gender, race, income level, geography, et cetera. That strikes me as a much better way to look at the world. Yeah. And well, well, of course, when I found that, I found that people in my study, I should say explicitly for the audience who, don't, who haven't read the book or might not have yet read the book, is that um, people started working together in forming communities of practice in this community. And then I found this repeatedly in different communities since. Because, for example, somebody uh, decided to get backyard chickens and now all of a sudden like, oh, no, I have pests. What do I do about it? I got to find somebody else who knows about this. I've got to connect with them. And when they connect with them, they don't say... Um, are you a chicken keeper because you believe in degrowth? They don't say that. What they do say is, what do I do about these pests? And that's very helpful because um, people can just start connecting right away over the over the practice and it's just talking shop, right? So it's not, um, you know, it's not ideologically driven and there's no ideological barriers. Uh, they also don't say, you know, are you my same race? Or do you agree about some race theory or gender theory or anything just to be able to have a conversation? Uh, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would they do that? Um, so I think it's important to notice that because when I first found this, it was sort of shocking to the sociological audience. How could this be true? <laughs> what did you find about gender? How did gender you know, impact people's ability to... And I'm not saying that there aren't contexts in which gender is so important um, in accessing resources, for example. And there's plenty of places around the world where gender... Women are the, are the main um, group of people doing subsistence agriculture. It's very unequal, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we know all of that is true. I'm not discounting the inequality. I'm just saying if we're thinking about a theory of social change that could be the most robust way to get people to work together, what I posit based on this really interesting community that I studied of people who are, who are self-producing food is that uh, this, these lumps, you know, d characteristics of uh, dimensions of difference, as we call them, race, class, gender, et cetera, what you really want to do is give people equality of opportunity, as is so often repeated in the, the intellectual dark web circles. And the way you do that is, is by sharing resources. And, and what's actually really paradoxical in the current political climate is focusing on the lumps, as you put it, using your jargon, has really made only significantly symbolic change, you know, like let's paint a mural on the street or something like that. But what really needs to happen is people need to actually share resources with one another like they did in this community. I mean, they're sharing information, giving people the ability to learn how to produce food for themselves without barrier, without pretense. Um, and to me, the power of that is, is unbelievable. The potential upside of getting people together across dimensions of difference on 
practical considerations, considerations of production, um, considerations of co-creation. And then what is the byproduct of that is meaning, connection, networks, community, you know, all of these other things. So um, I'm extremely hopeful after having interviewed communities like this. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. As one of my favorite authors would say about the sociologists and their idea that it's all explained by the lumps, especially if you actually know people, it's a theory so absurd that only a professor could believe it. I think about our county fairs here in rural Virginia, which we go to every year. And, you know, there's everything from the big bellied right wing rancher showing off his fancy cattle to the poor kid who's trying to earn some 4-H money by selling their goats to get some money at the charity auction. That's a big part of everyone to the woman who's so proud of her horse that she works with every single day of her life that enters into the horse show and then to the woman who loves her flower arrangements and the other one who's so proud of her pickles. And you go, wait a minute, these people cross every line of lump and et cetera, because they have interests in common and they have network connectivity across their interests. And so that only a professor could believe that that was not true. Yeah, and in fact, I, I'm I'm constantly bothering the sociological and especially environmental sociological community to get out into the world. <laughs> I'm like, have the, sometimes the things that they say, I think like, wow, have you ever talked to somebody? <laughs> have you ever talked to a regular person? It's it and it, it's not their fault though. You know, they're siloed. Their incentive structure is to to get grants and to write a certain way, and you know, that's a self perpetuating cycle. Take them to the county fair, right, as a starting point, right? And say, you know, just talk to the people here in these sheds that are doing all these competitions and see if your theories actually apply. Anyway, we've had lots of interesting preamble. Let's now get into telling us about your research. Where was it? What kind of people? And I particularly thought you did a very nice job of deciding, contrary to the way the data is often presented, to create urban, suburban, and rural as three distinct classes. I thought that was very nice. So why don't you just kind of go into the essence of what the work was, and then we can get into some of the details. Sure. So um, basically, I decided um, to do my dissertation research, interviewing and doing ethnography, which is basically, you know, sort of hanging around them, ethnography, noticing what what is what is happening around you, um, of uh, people who produced food for themselves. And I wasn't sure whether or not I would encounter people who produced a significant amount, but I was I was seeking out people who produced at least fifty percent, and I was able to find that that community. And so that's who I ended up uh, interviewing. And when I was designing the study, uh, I at first, I tell this story a lot because it was it was really kind of an origin story for my whole life trajectory um, of one of the other grad students who's from a rural area asked me, you know, who are you going to study? And I said, you know, urban people, community gardens, that kind of thing. And um, of course, I said that because I'm from Chicago and I think who else is on the cutting edge of things except for urban people, urban environmentalist type people? Um, and he said, you're talking to people who produce food for their own consumption. You're not talking to rural people. And <laughs> of course, the thought didn't even cross my mind. And, and of course, he was completely right. So I thought, of course, let me include rural and suburban people because I imagine geography is going to have some impact on this, right? Let access to land, space, et cetera. And so I went out seeking out people from these three different areas, interviewing them, um, asking them about their food production. Why'd they get into it? What was what is it about for them? I essentially found that there are two groups. There's the old timers, which tend to be the rural people, but 
there's some old timers from the city too, people who have been fishing in the city lakes for generations, for example. But the old timers tended to be more or less working class and the newcomers tended to be more city people and more or less, you know, upper class, upper, upper middle class. Um, and the idea being that self-producing food is just a thing one does in certain communities. It's just part of life. It's built into the fabric of life. Whereas the newcomers, it's this thing, um, maybe they, a few generations ago, the people of their family had gardens and chickens, but then they got away from that. And now they're realizing the value of it and they're coming back to it. Um, and I more or less found that a bunch of people came to food production or continued to do food production for so many different reasons, whether it was the feeling of alienation, which they probably wouldn't use that term, but I did, or distrust distrust of the food quality, distrust of the government, distrust of corporations, distrust of global supply chains, a feeling of, of um, crisis and uncertainty. And what was interesting to me is that despite this myriad different assessment of the problems of the world, they came to a similar conclusion as to what to do about it. Let me just get my hands dirty. Let me just go ahead and, and try, to, try to get food for myself to become a producer, to become more self-reliant. And then it sort of spiraled for a lot of them into this network of community of practitioners who do whatever version of this that they do, hunting, fishing, growing, keeping livestock, you know, big gardens. And as they connected with these other practitioners, they basically um, made these communities. And then out of those communities came a whole, a whole other set of social circumstances where I guess we could get into the economic and political shadow structures, as I call them. That was my next topic, actually, shadow structures. But before that, you mentioned a word that you used 75 times, which was alienation. And that does strike me as a useful lens for much of what was motivating people. Could you expand a little bit on what alienation means, where the idea comes from, and what you saw in your conversations that led you to believe that this concept of alienation it was important to motivate people to participate in these subsistence agriculture communities. Yes. Yeah, so I am going to, even in this answer, explicitly try to use as little amount of jargon as possible because it's it's sort of my new philosophical stance that it, it needs to be accessible to people. You need to be able to explain concepts in a way that makes sense. So alienation typically is a Marxist term, but the, the idea being that in the process of what one might call de-peasantization or, you know, many people were small scale farmers on the land over 90 something percent in the U.S. in the early days. And now it's less than one percent, less than two percent, I think, for sure. The idea being when people were connected to the land and that in that original description I gave at the beginning of the the um, interview about this organic traditional era when people are are their businesses in home in their home that means they're they're with their children they're with their family they hold this land in common they have a network of people um, they are sort of enchanted with the world when that era ends and people move into this rational or inorganic or or industrial era it causes a sort of rift, not just between the the individual and nature, which it does because it separates them from the land and from the means of their own production of existence, but it also disconnects them from this, this community, this network of traditional ways of relating to one another. Um, and so 
this is why I have the book titled Reconnecting to Work, Nature, and Community, because really it's this fundamental shift where people are alienated from work that's meaningful to them, nature that provides the sustenance on which they need to live, and the community that they are dependent on and a part of. Um, And so alienation is this you know, kind of catch-all term to to try to describe what it is that we're all feeling in the in this techno-industrial era. That's it's really hard for us to put our finger on. And I do think in that case, the Marxist theory is helpful because it's just like, okay, we're we're in this era of time, and it's quite different from the rest of human history. What's going on? Why do we feel this way? Um, and yeah, that's why I use that term. Yeah, and I agree. I think it is actually a useful term, and it does explain a lot of phenomena that otherwise seem somewhat unrelated. So you mentioned another term, which I thought was another nice one, called shadow structures. So let's go there next. Sure. Um, So this was from Berman's dual process theory, where he basically says, he draws on a couple other theorists saying this similar thing when a society fails or collapses, or there's there's sort of multiple overlapping crises. And out of that come these shadow social structures, these, these alternative networks that must exist to help people get by as, as the system is failing. And basically what I found in my research is that as people connected over practice, over problems of practice and production, um, they, they started to develop into these sort of informal economic and political relations. Um, economic being pretty straightforward things such as I was, I'm still on this listserv. It's like Chicago chicken enthusiasts email listserv. And people are constantly trying to rehome chickens, other roosters, coops. Oh, our, where our flock grew out of our coop. Let's re. And it's just this sort of uh, informal economies. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll give this to you. But the expectation is that somebody will give something to me at some point. But then there was more explicit economic arrangements, such as, you know, every once in a while, we have too much manure from our poultry production in the city to to put back into our own land. So we give that to a community garden in return, we get some vegetables, this kind of back and forth. Um, so this, this kind of informal economic arrangements, I think, are just so incredibly widespread and so unmeasured, basically unmeasured. And so if I see this as one potential route for a solution to many of our our social problems, um, I always am arguing with sociologists, like it just, there's no, mo- there's no model <laughs> that includes this. So we need to think about that at least when we're trying to think about these solutions. Um, and then the, the other shadow structure I talk about was a cute little story about this alderman in Chicago, which is a city council person, um, who introduced a measure to try to ban chicken keeping in the city. And all the chicken keepers sort of banded together. How do we stop them from doing this? You know, we really want to keep our chickens. And what they did was really interesting as a political movement, instead of like protesting outside the alderman's office or anything like that, what they did is they started a Chicago chicken coop tour and they opened up their backyards to anyone for free to come see their coops. And it was like a backyard tour And I went on it for two years in a row. And what I observed was neighbors or people coming from around the city curious about chickens 
Um, making conversation, um, it's kind of fun. The kids get into it. They ask questions. But then neighbors who are nearby, they find an excuse to talk to one another. Oh, I didn't know you had chickens. That's really interesting. Oh, what, what is this? And how does that work? And, and basically what it does, this sort of political movement or political choice is that these people connect with their neighbors in a way they didn't before. Now they've got some social capital going on where the neighbors are willing to go to bat for them on the chicken issue. And also it just becomes this thing where the stigma goes away. You, sh- you just put it out into the broad daylight. Look, this is what, this is what chickens are actually like. It's not anything that we need to be that worried about um, that we would need to ban it. It's really nice. We get fresh eggs. Even you should try it. And I, and several of my conversations, I talked to people who kept chickens because they went on the coop tour and saw, Oh, it's not that hard. You know, I could do this too. Um, and as a political strategy, it was extremely useful. And they they overturned or they stopped the, the ban from happening. Um, and then out of that network of chicken keepers, they crowdsourced a website with resources. Uh, what do other cities do? You know, how can Chicago be rebranding chicken keeping as on the forefront of, you know, environmental movements and such? And so I argue that that's like this sort of political shadow structure, wherein these people weren't explicitly going to the city and saying, you know, we want the right to keep chickens, but instead it was like, we're already practitioners, we have this thing in mind we want to, um, we want to protect our ability to do, and how do we bring in other people into this movement? And, it's, and it was really through the experience of connecting with one another, talking to one another, showing the actual what chickens having backyard chickens is like that they were successful. Yeah, that's been quite an amazing movement, the urban chicken movement. Chicago seems to have been interesting in that they didn't have any rules against it. And so this was a defensive measure. In much of the country, it's the other way around. The rules forbid it. Even in the small city of Stanton, Virginia, about an hour east of us where we spend some of our time, city of 25,000 had a rule against it. And so there the people that wanted to do chickens, many of them were doing it illegally, did more explicit lobbying of the council people. But it did include some of the things you said, like, come on out and see what we're doing, right? This is not like we have a, you know, 20,000 chicken industrial brooder house or something. You know, we got, I love the description in the book of the woman who had the chicken coop built under her deck, right? And so it's not intrusive, particularly. It's not taking up a lot of room. I got seven chickens. I mean, come on. No big deal, right? That was really quite interesting. Talking about shadow structures, this is a little bit outside the context of your book, actually, but we can just talk about it a little bit because I think it's important, is when things start to come out of the shadows a little bit. I'm thinking specifically about farmers markets. You know, these things started as informal people selling stuff on the tailgate of their truck. And then, okay, let's all do it on Tuesdays at the bank parking lot, right? And then the next thing, somebody goes to the bank and says, can we rent your parking lot? Or can you let us use your parking lot on Saturday when it's a little more convenient? And then people start bringing their pop-up tents. And then there's a market master and some fees associated with it and a certain amount of vetting and quality control. Any thoughts on how shadow structure can gradually turn into institutional structure. Yeah, I think that this is something um, 
that is inevitable. It's inevitably going to happen where enough people start to get organized. The powers <laughs> that be will will notice, will take notice, and and um, find ways to extract whatever um, wealth they can, or you know whatever power resources they can. Um, I I really don't know enough to say exactly how that will play out over the course of time because you know, who knows at what point we are in the dual process wherein the one system uh, is is crashing so quickly that it gets weakened to a point that it doesn't have the resources to to really push back too hard on too many of the alternatives. Uh, I don't know where we're at in that timeline. But I do think that if we are to make it out of this mess, um, just just making as many potential shadow structures as possible um, and making them, I've, I was writing about this recently, making them as illegible to power as possible is really key. Me having connections with my friends and, and dealing um, in manure and vegetables, ideally regulators will want to regulate that. They'll want to get in on controlling that. But as long as they don't know, they can't regulate it. And I don't want to advocate for anything illegal, but you know, just sharing things between neighbors isn't and should not be illegal. Um, so really it's a matter of scaling horizontally, getting as many people as possible doing this very bare minimum amount of shadow structure development that's not so visible um, that I think is the ideal way to proceed until you know whether or not you know, the larger structures are powerful enough to crush you or not. So it is interesting that when you do get to this next level, new things then emerge. So once, you know, once you get to a quasi-professional farmer's market, you typically now see enough energy that people can become full-time producers for those markets, which is unlikely to be the case when it's informal exchange off the tailgate of your pickup truck. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Though, of course, I suppose there's a risk that Walmart could try to suppress the farmer's market. But any place I've ever lived, the powers that be don't seem to be opposed to farmer's markets. No, but I would I would argue that, for for example, when it has become institutionalized, that a lot of people have have broken down the numbers on ter- in terms of now what do you, what fee do you have to pay to have a booth? And then the amount of time you spend sitting there and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and then I don't know the extent to which, depending on which municipality or whatever, uh, you just in order to sell, you need to prove that you're regulated and you have been inspected, which a lot of times is like, pay $700 and somebody comes to your place for five minutes, you know. Ah, yeah, yeah. Then you're down the rat hole of regulation. Here, you know, for a commie intellectual, you're sounding kind of libertarian here. <laughs> I know, I know. And this is so funny because really like my my conclusions have drawn me to it would be ideal if the state didn't do this stuff and instead was benevolent and helped everybody who wanted to make a livelihood like this. Uh, but they're not doing that right now. So we got to come up with something else. We've got to be smart. We've got to be creative. Um, and basically that's like my whole life's work is that is figuring out how do I get people's beautiful, exciting, creative energy um, that they want to put toward having a meaningful livelihood and economy and life. Um, how do I help accelerate that drive and desire that already exists in people? 
Yeah, my friend Joel Salatin, who might be the world's famous alternative farmer, lives down the road from us a little bit. One of the books he wrote is called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. <laughs> and he's written like 15 books. So this is one of the most interesting because he talks about just that, how much effort he has to put to either avoid regulation or spend surprising amounts of time and energy to conform to it and draws a picture that there'd be a hell of a lot more of this going on if they would just step back for a while and let things happen. It's interesting that our society did allow that for a while with respect to the internet. It was in the kind of wild heyday from 1992 to maybe 2007 or eight. The powers that be, at least in the West, said, eh, let a million flowers bloom and let's see what happens. But now they seem to have the same desire to, I mean, Europe now, holy shit, the amount of regulatory BS to putting up a website has now become quite significant. And the U.S. could be the next one on the on the road there, which would be very unfortunate. In fact, truthfully, dirty little secret, an awful lot of really early stage startups in Europe these days are actually incorporating in the U.S. and having U.S.-based nexus for things like their online services, despite having not a single employee or anybody associated with the company in the U.S. because the regulatory BS in the EU has gotten so severe. Yeah, and I'm actually hopeful about using the internet as a tool. I have an idea about using the using a website to connect people to one another to buy and sell because uh and I hope that I can make it before if if or before the US turns into that because um I really think it could be pretty powerful as a tool to connect people to, with one another. Cool. Well, let's get back to your work. You go into some detail and enumerate the varying reasons why people choose to become subsistence agriculturalists. Could you run across some of those? Maybe even give some examples if you remember any of them. I think these were fascinating because they were very varied, which was kind of neat. Yeah, there's some people. The first one that pops to mind was such a weird one. Um, there was a car mechanic who started getting really deep into peak oil. Um, and that was really funny because it was like, first of all, he's a car mechanic and second of all, he's working class. And you, you just don't typically think of working class people as like peak oil people. Um, but he got into it. Then he started going to these conferences and this guy sort of went off the deep end. I mean, I say the deep end, I don't mean, I mean that affectionately. I think it's great what he d is doing um, and started a center for sustainability for or for urban kids to come out into the rural area and learn about biodiesel and all this stuff and doing so much experimentation. Um, lots of people feel uh, like, you know, the newcomers especially got into it for social and environmental reasons, you know, thinking about farm labor and all the environmental catastrophes arising from industrial agriculture thinking, you know, let me just take out as much as I can from that system and not contribute to it by buying those kind of products, but instead producing them myself. Um, other people don't trust the quality of food. And that was a really funny part of one chapter from my dissertation that didn't make it into the book where there's this interesting class dynamic with certain types of food. For example, one reason that working class people partake in subsistence food production, like hunting or fishing, is because they couldn't afford food at the grocery store. So they would get into it because it's like, oh, this is a this is a bad year for a dad at work. So we're we're going hunting and we're going to eat venison. Um, but then what's really funny is that recently it's become this sort of boutique type of food for wealthy people to think I'm eating stuff you can't even access in the grocery store. 
So there was like this weird back and forth between like venison sausage is um, this with with some cranberry sauces. This is like high end food for some people, but for other people, it's the food of poverty. <laughs> so depending on the cultural context. So again, another reason is uh, people get into it because of poverty. They just need to to access some food one way or another. Um, and and another woman um, was telling me about how she wants to teach her son sort of civic duty through food production, Be, meaning, you know, we take, we're responsible enough to take care of ourselves and share with others um, and take care of other creatures in the process. So I, I found the diversity fascinating as well. Yeah, that was very, very interesting. I remember one woman you talked about had a very specific health issue that she thought, frankly, probably BS, but she probably, but she thought that changing her diet to this kind of diet would be good for her medical condition. So, you know, there's a whole constellation of different motivations, which is kind of neat is that even though they come to it for very many reasons, these shadow structures start to connect them to each other. Because as you describe, a community of practitioners don't really care how you got into it, but rather the fact that you are doing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some examples of that. Yeah. So um, it was it was quite interesting to me to find Here's an example. One of the example that I found was there's this urban agriculture livestock expo that gets held every year um, in Chicago in a high school, um, actually right near to where I grew up on the south side of the city. It's an actually an agricultural high school within the city limits. Um, and in this high school, they had this free expo every year in February for for whatever reason, the middle of winter. Um, and people came out with their livestock, both from the city and from the surrounding, you know, suburban and, and rural areas. And people who were interested in keeping livestock came to the expo. And there were these really funny and interesting conversations. And when you first walk in, there's just goats in a pen to the side. There's a guy with a, you know, a a beehive, but without bees in it, but with a beehive to show how it works. And people, a guy with ducks, a guy with chickens, women too. Um, and it was so funny, the conversations, uh, well, how, how do you keep ducks? Well, what do they need? And how does that differ from chickens? And why would you do ducks instead of chickens? And how do you get started with bees? And what? And then some other guy comes up and says, oh, well, I lost my hive last year. And oh, yeah, we we did hear there was some mites going around. But then we did have those couple really cold days. And so these kinds of conversations about how does one um, how does one even get to wrap their head around keeping goats in the city of Chicago, which there were people keeping goats in Chicago. Um, and the way they do it is they talk to other people. And it's sort of like this, I don't know, it's not exactly keeping up with the Joneses, but hey, how interesting that you're doing this. Why can't I do it? And it opens up, up the realm of possibility for people when they see other people doing something interesting. Um, I would add that at the Chicago Chicken Coop Tour, I saw this process play out, for example, if somebody had somebody came to see the chicken coop, oh, what is a chicken coop? How does this work? And then they in the corner they see the beehive and they say, Oh, you have bees, how does that work? And then it becomes this sort of weird, I'm not trying to sell you the idea of keeping chickens or bees. I'm just simply showing you that I have it and that it's interesting and that it works and that it's kind of fun. Um, and it and it sort of spread. 
in this network, just the experience of seeing it. This is my theory of network social capital. It's a perfect example of network social capital where two people run into each other, a classic weak link, right? And they exchange a new perspective, which is a person that didn't know that it was feasible to have goats and bees in a South Chicago neighborhood now realizes that it is. And by the way, they can use the weak link to gather more information, you know, I'll send you an email. Could you tell me what do I need to do to get started here, right? And you gave a very interesting example where someone, the key bit of information was that this feed store out here will help you pick what kind of little chicks you need. Yeah, exactly. And you can imagine that in this world in which we live, there's so few people doing homesteading or small scale food production that there's only a few nodes of places where people have to pass through that node to get to the other side of where they want to go. And so they say, you go to this farm and fleet or whatever it is, and and then you just inevitably run into other people there. Another node was that there was a farm right outside the city limits that held classes, beekeeping classes, chicken keeping classes, whatever it was. And that is where a ton of people met one another. Oh, I'm interested in chicken keeping. I'm going to do this on the weekend. It'll be something fun to do outside my regular job. And I met these people in the chicken class and now they're this cohort of chicken keepers and and it just all goes on from there. That's great. And that's, as you say, organic, bottom-up, social network connected. The next thing we're going to talk about, which you discuss in the book, is how participation in subsistence agriculture seems to have an influence on people's relationship with the earth. Let's call it practical environmentalism. You gave some interesting stories about people who would not normally be considered environmentalists, including by themselves, who nonetheless showed some environmental sensitivities. So maybe tell us a little bit about what you learned in that dimension. Sure. So... You know, I think there's a kind of elitism in the environmentalist community, and this is borne out by the statistics. People who typically identify, self-identify as environmentalists tend to be urban. They tend to be highly educated, you know, uh, BA or higher. Um, They tend to be left-leaning, you know, elite in some way or another. And what I, my, my understanding of environmentalism, um, I was never really so critical of the movement um, until I had these these interviews because I sort of realized that um, I said in the book, I sit down with one of my participants, big overstuffed chair, the guy's wearing Carhartt jacket and Carhartt pants, and I'm thinking, all right, here we go. And then he starts talking about pollution in the ocean. And then he talks about overfishing, fish life cycles, how they're not being allowed to get to maturity, how there's huge barges in the ocean letting out so much pollution and cruise ships and how there's no regulation on this. And then he says, there's so many problems with fish populations and it's not climate change. And for him, you know, climate change is associated with this elite sort of movement of people who want to get him to believe something he doesn't want to be forced to believe. Yet his ethics are, you know, caring about fish populations, caring about pollution, caring about pristine natural environments. Um, And many of his practices in his garden and and, in fishing practices reflected this. Um, And so I kind of went on a journey within myself, like, what is an environmentalist then? You know, are we gatekeeping 
people who would be natural and obvious allies from participating and connecting with one another or connecting with us in our movement because we have some very narrow conception of what allows one to to participate. Um, and of course, that is what's happening. And um, I try to fight against that as often as I can, because I hear a lot of hysteria that's rightful among environmentalists about the state of our environment, um, but not a lot of willingness or interest to think outside the box about what is our best chance for, for finding allies in this fight? What's our best chance for solving these problems? Um, and, it, and oftentimes, the environmentalists, the first thing they think is, you know, let's make a top-down policy for bike lanes or, or retrofitting buildings or something like that. I was just tweeting about this the other day. And to me, thinking about somebody, I call this guy Marty in my book, the one I'm talking about, the Carhartts, finding ways to work together on something simple like uh, working together on subsistence food production, but other other things too, I think we would find more common ground than you would think. And the way you get the common ground um, is through practice, like we said before. And so figuring out what are these sort of practices we both like that make people's lives better that we can agree on. And then we don't really have to do the gatekeeping of you know, it's almost, it feels dogmatic. It feels almost religious. Prove to me that you agree about climate change, you know, or you don't get to be in the club. And as opposed to, you know, well, if the solution to climate change or one of many diverse myriad solutions to climate change is to self-produce as much food as you possibly can, because then it's hyper-local, people tend to uh, use the, the gentlest pro-environmental methods in the food production because it's in their backyard, because they're the ones eating it, because it's their own soil. I call this ecological embeddedness. If this set of practices gets us where we want to go and stepping in the right direction toward environmental solutions, what is the point of the gatekeeping? I love that. I love the environmental embeddedness because it reminded me of something in my life. I've been a deer hunter. I just did the numbers for 52 years. And you could imagine the reaction that certain kinds of suburban environmentalists, yuppie types have to that when they discover, I'll just bring up at a dinner party. Oh yeah, we uh, you know, killed 23 deer this year on the farm, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> and yet, even though some of my hunting buddies, you might say, are extremely illiberal, not all of them, but some of them are. Nonetheless, they are truly embedded environmentally. I mean, they go out in every kind of weather. They enjoy the woods. You know, they will fight for, you know, preserving habitat, increasing state forest lands, you know, keeping loggers out of the state forest, you know, or, or the national forest. You know, down the line, you go, wait a minute. Some of them are also fishermen. You know, they don't want logging in the areas where the good trout streams are. And yet, you know, the good coastal blues would think these people were Carhartt wearing pickup tribe and retrobates, which they are in part. <laughs> well, you know what? This is so funny because just recently um, I've been interacting with some people on Twitter who are really pushing my thinking on this topic. And I've I've self-declared and came up with a term called Doomer Optimist. I, I'm calling myself a Doomer Optimist. And the way I define that is, you know, there are certain social, you know, as I said, the social system will fail, is failing in one way or another, crisis is arising. And that sort of necessarily forces people to search for solutions. And 
my doomer optimist take on this situation that you're describing about the hunters and the the coastal elites is, you know, I think if there is a point, you know, even if it's temporary where there's not enough food on the shelves, it would be very interesting to see what kind of alliances form and what kind of new experiences come where hunting and fishing don't seem so abhorrent to the people who shop in supermarkets if they can't get food, <laughs> you know, and if they can't access things. So I'm, I'm interested to see how this plays out because out of every crisis, of course, comes, comes this new opportunity, this new way of thinking, oh, I never really thought of this before. I just basically assumed there would always be food on the shelves. And now all of a sudden I need to rethink what is local food. What could my local ecology produce for me? You know, what if I can't get, what if a, what if a ship gets caught in the Suez Canal and I can't get certain fresh vegetables from the other side of the world in the opposite season, then what? Yep. I'll confess that when the COVID thing first started, we had no idea how bad it would be. And many of us were kind of doomer, gloomer, survivalist in our thinking. You know, I was going, hmm, how many deer a year can I take off the farm? And according to the biologists, it's about 30. And I go, that's a lot of deer. You know, I can feed a lot of people with 30 deer. And so the thought did go through my mind. Didn't go there, fortunately. It turned out that COVID was a serious but not super serious crisis, but a damn wake-up call, I hope, for the human race that it could have been a hell of a lot worse and the next one may well be. So we better do a hell of a lot of thinking between now and then. Well, I think that's about as much as we want to talk about in your book, unless there's any final things you want to talk about. And then we'll give us a few minutes to talk about your school. Nope, I think that's good. Yeah, I think we talked about a lot of good things there. And so the name of the book is Subsistence Agriculture in the U.S., Reconnecting to Work, Nature, and Community. And just ignore all the commie shit in there. <laughs> There's actually a lot of good stuff. She doesn't really believe it. She had to do it to get her dissertation passed by a bunch of commie professors, right? <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk a little bit about the Rhizoma Field School in Colonia, Uruguay. First, the origin story. You know, how did a academic from Chicago end up in Uruguay and starting a agricultural school? Yep. It's basically all tied up. The research, the trajectory, it's all tied up with each other, you know, sort of understanding that we're in a pivotal point in history, knowing that I want to have some form of stability if I wanted to have kids, which I did have kids uh, during grad school. So better figure out where I'm going to raise them so that they have a stable childhood. Um, and then I had a moment in the midst of grad school um, before collecting research and then research the research experience just um, cemented this this feeling. But I, I took a class in grad school um, with very good professor Scott Frickle, who's now at Brown. And um, we read a paper about some scientists studying salmon populations in the Pacific Northwest. And there was one group of scientists who did a computer model to guess how the construction of a, a dam would impact salmon populations. And another group of scientists that counted the salmon before and after the construction. <laughs> and the second group of scientists was was insanely more accurate. And then, you know, we're starting to think about the, the concept of how do we know things um, and what are the limits to our, our rational scientific way of understanding things and, you know, how, how much does taking things out of their context in nature and the world influence our ability to understand them. And I had this sort of light bulb moment of, you know, people need experiences to learn deeply. 
And I need to get out of this classroom. I need to get kids out of this classroom. I need people to see things in context. And that's where my passion lies. And then, of course, when I went and interviewed people, seeing people in their own context, noticing all these these little things that that I wouldn't get just from having them talk about it even, certainly not having read something about it, um, seeing all of the things in context and how they work together really made me think, okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to finish grad school. We're going to move to Uruguay because I thought it was a very stable place to move to. I was right. Thank God. You never know what these macro forces, economic, social, political forces, but it's been a very, very nice and stable place to be so far. And when I came here, I thought there's got to be some way for me to use my PhD, my expertise in environmental sociology to get some study abroad happening here. So I could get some students into this context to see what's going on here in Uruguay um, and to learn sort of on the ground from people doing the hard work of environmentalism in practice, which means here there's there's a whole community of people doing agroecology, regenerative agriculture, experimenting with earth building, like so many cool things. And eventually I started our first partnership in 2018 with the University of Idaho. And it was just a short trip with students. And and the pedagogical method I worked out was basically, you know, they came, they worked with the local people, which are basically our community and friends, because that's how things work in, in Latin America. It's, there's no real separation between professional life and, and um, private life. And people all know each other. And um, the we asked our friends, you know, can you use volunteer work for a couple of days, and can you explain to people what you're doing? The why are you why are you farming agroecologically? What does that mean to you? And the students did it. They actually pulled weeds and planted trees and built things with mud and straw. And and then in the evening we would sit together and talk about what are what is they're seeing. <laughs> you know, they ask questions. Why do they do this this way and that? And uh, I helped to contextualize it, you know, using words and phrases that they understand as, you know, undergraduates. And um, yeah, and, the, and with that trip, the Risoma Field School was born until it was put on hiatus for global pandemic. <laughs> interesting. Uruguay is an interesting place, a place that most Americans don't know much about. But the only thing I remember about it is it used to be at least the most affluent, richest country in South America. I don't know if that's still true. And as you said, relatively stable compared to other countries in the region. What's it like these days there? It's really a nice country. If you know anything about Argentina, it's very similar culturally, historically, basically everything. You know, um, there's a there's a big gaucho culture, ranchers. Uh, you know, people wear berets and and drink yerba mate, um, which a custom that I have taken up and I really love it. And it's a small enough country, however, differently than Argentina, that it's quite nimble in its policy responses uh, to things. And so um, it's not as sort of beholden to the powers that be um, as a country like Argentina or Brazil, who have many much larger population, many more resources. It's a mainly agricultural country, which is really nice because basically I know everyone around me, if, if we, supply chains completely broke down, we would eat. <laughs> we would eat well, probably. Everybody's got cattle. Everybody's got chickens. Everybody's got a garden. And that's really interesting to me, too, because I wanted to come here to learn uh, a little bit about, you know, what is the, what is this 
kind of, it's almost like what you might call an ecology of the poor, an environmentalism of the poor, but it's, it's low resource use life. You know, what is that like? And can we do it in a way that feels very comfortable um, by our, you know, U.S. raised standards? And and we're learning a ton and doing a lot of simple things like we don't have a dryer, we have a clothesline, and that's okay. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the biggest, most expansive technology, the clothesline, um, but it works to save quite a lot of energy and electricity is expensive here. Um, and those different kind of things where we're sort of when we said to people, you know, we moved here because we kind of wanted to do homestead type of thing. We want to produce our food. When we said that to people here, it was like, oh yeah, obviously. Whereas if we said that to somebody in the U.S., oh, what do you, what, what, why would you do that? That's so weird. Um, but here it's just kind of par for the course, which is nice. Very interesting. Yeah, of course, it's no longer weird in many parts of the U.S. where the local agricultural movement is going strong. You know, I would say in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia is one place. There's a lot of people buying little 40-acre farmsteads and taking the same route and doing it in the U.S. Though, of course, you got to dodge the regulators, as we talked about earlier, and cost of land is high, cost of labor is high, etc., so it may well make a lot of sense to prototype some of these ideas in a place where there's less busybodies telling you what you can and can't do and when where casual labor is probably pretty much available whenever you need it, et cetera. Yeah, and not just that, uh, um, an unbroken chain of people who have been doing it. Ah, that's true. Huge. You know, so that's really key. And then and the whole network of people who know how to do these things. And for example, we've gotten two cattle now. We're trying to do something called rotational grazing or or holistic management that um, ideally when done right can help sequester carbon and build soil. Um, and when those cows come to their moment to be slaughtered. <laughs> we will have a neighbor come over and, and help us do it. Um, and, and they know how to do that. And we could call on 30 people we know who know how to do that. Um, and so that kind of, um, you know, lived knowledge kind of thing is, it's just, it's just so valuable and, and really underappreciated, especially by what I would say is a technocratic global environmentalist community who don't really see this group for the set of knowledge that they have that's so so essential and, and going to be essential in the future, um, especially. Ah, very interesting. Now, do you intend to just stay there in Uruguay or do at some point do you want to take your learnings and bring them back and perhaps be a seed to start something new and big in the U.S.? My whole goal from the very beginning was I am going to be the conduit that explains these things back to the U.S. So I started Twitter like in earnest a few months ago and have been sharing little bits of how life works here um, and saying to people like, you know, this is this is not really rocket science stuff. This is this is how it works. And this is not that hard to get started. Just be, you know, t try to learn from these models. And I have all sorts of things up there that I as they occur to me, I've been sharing them. But then I was also thinking it might be ideally on the horizon. How cool would it be to make a Rizoma Field School node? which is people don't have to fly all the way to South America to come see agroecology in action. There are a bunch of small scale farmers all over the world where every university in the world that are not really being held up as beacons of environmental change. How cool would it be to make a, a Rizoma Field School node across the whole US and Europe and everywhere where they need the most help in, in learning these things and then make a field experience semester re required 
for every university student. You and maybe it's not just farmers. Maybe it's also um, skilled skilled trades, um, which I think are really important. Somebody's got to go out there and learn what it's like in a skilled trade um, as one semester long project. It doesn't need to be you know forty hours a week. It could just be as much as a class takes. But um, having that real lived experience is totally different. I think. Um, than theoretically learning about quote unquote environmental solutions, but instead, you know, what do people actually have to figure out in the real world? What kind of things do they have to, uh, you know, structures are they bumping up against? And if a whole generation of students were sort of shown that there's a path for experimenting and trying different livelihoods, I imagine that could be really powerful. That's a great vision. I love it. Familiar with something called woofing? Yes, yes. I've done I did woofing in my international travels and we're also a woof host. Ah, okay. I know a number of people that are woof hosts. I know a number of young folks who are active in our local agriculture scene. The new back to the land movement, but not incompetent dope smoking hippies. I think they still like a little weed now and then, but they pride themselves on their competence as small scale agriculturalists. And a lot of them got their start in woofing, which is WWOOF, I think. Yes, WWOOF, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. Um, I've been doing it. I think it's a great introduction, um, especially for people who want to get some experience on the land um, and, you know, might not even, can't really even conceive of how to do that. And it's also really great for people, um, maybe people who have had a, a sort of informal working homestead who are looking for some labor and for some help and would like to basically have an apprentice in return where people can learn these skills. Um, the idea is that you get accommodation and some food in return for, you know, like four hours a day, five hours a day of work, you know, five days a week. Um, and then you learn, you know, on the job training type thing. Yeah, very cool. Very interesting. All righty. Well, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah. So I have another really, the schooling vision is one prong of my attack on trying to expand shadow structures. The other prong that I wanted to talk about is I believe that we need some way because these people that I interviewed are kind of a marginal group. They're not widespread, right? Of people producing food for themselves in Chicago. It's not like, it's not even 10% of people. It's, it's a small percentage. But I'm thinking that there must be a way to relocalize production and consumption by making buying and selling very easy. So um, I'm, I'm working on some sort of model wherein I can get people connected through a website of actually buying and selling locally, which then in my vision, it's not telling them what to do. It's only giving them the tools to do whatever they're interested in doing. And uh, in my vision, with that sort of accessibility to sell easily locally, what I saw in my research um, where people start connecting with one another and then innovation and creativity and social networks sort of expand exponentially from those initial connections. Um, in my vision, the seed of just, oh, I'm just going to buy seeds or I'm going to buy some eggs from somebody who um, is nearby. Isn't that cool? That would be fun. You know, that would be a fun way to get to know one another because um, people are really just looking for excuses to connect, I think. 
that sort of turns into this exciting, well, maybe I could keep chickens or maybe I could uh, start making furniture or maybe I could learn a skilled trade through these other people who are working in construction through this traditional methods and, and they're, they're, they have no labor, <laughs> you know, they have more demand than supply. So my vision is to sort of create a market for people to sort of self-express. And now, of course, I sound like a crazy market libertarian. <laughs> um, but really, my vision is there's got to be some way to make it super easy for people to imagine a future livelihood that is meaningful, interesting, um, helps them to get to know their neighbors, builds resilient communities. And, you know, I feel an obligation from having learned what I learned in my research to try to apply it and to, to really try to accelerate that um, impulse that already exists in people. So um, just be on the lookout for, for that because it's uh, it's in progress, uh, the idea, and I'm trying to work it out with a really cool team of people who, who think the same way um, and also trying to make sure to structure it in such a way, maybe like a cooperative and actually Jason Weiner, who I heard on your, your podcast, his law firm would be a central part of this idea because they're really on the cutting edge thinking about how do you structure a business um, so that, you know, equality and sustainability are centered. So thinking about that, structuring that into it, and then, you know, all sorts of people who think about localism and, and Joe Norman, who you had on your podcast, uh, is involved. So um, lots of cool people really trying to think, how do you make change happen in a way that, you know, is decentralized, self-determined, and um, people are doing something they, they want to already be doing that solves some problem for them, and they choose it. I mean, I love that. That's what we call in the game B world, lowering the activation energy for something to happen. You know, you need to create something that makes it easy to get over the hump. You know, it's actually a term I adapted from chemistry where I have to put a lot of energy in to make some reactions happen, but a catalyst lowers the activation energy and allows things to happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. This would be a classic example of that. I wish you the best of luck. If I could help you in any way, connect you with folks. I know a lot of people in this kind of space that are thinking about these kinds of things and I'll look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Have you back on the show? You can tell us about it. Okay, sounds good. I, when I'm successful, I'll be back. All right, sounds good. Anything else? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rizoma School, R-I-Z-O-M-A, at Rizoma School. Very good. And as always, we'll have pointers to that and everything else we talked about on the episode homepage at jimrutshow.com. Well, thank you, Ashley, for a very interesting episode. Thanks for having me. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.